Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. What is the best Christmas present you ever received? For some of you, it may be a gift that had a lot of monetary value to it. I understand some people, uh, some families give expensive gifts like jewelry or fine automobiles or a hoard of cash. I've never been a part of a family like that, but I hear they're out there somewhere. For the others of you, it might be a gift that didn't have a lot of monetary value, but sentimental value because of uh, who gave it. Every parent knows the joy of receiving a homemade Christmas craft or a handmade Christmas card with the words, I love you, scrawled in crayon. Of course, those gifts tend to mean a lot more if they come from your five-year-old child rather than your 35-year-old child, but it, it's the sentiment that counts. Other people would say, you know, the best gift I got was one that was practical in nature. It's something I really needed. A few years ago, I did a funeral service for an 84-year-old uh, friend, and his daughter-in-law had written a tribute to her father-in-law about a special Christmas present he had purchased for his wife. She wrote, it was boxed and meticulously wrapped by dad himself. It was undoubtedly one of the most precious gifts I've ever seen. Not diamonds, pearls, or a fur coat. It was a year's supply of all of mom's preferred toiletries, multiple cans of hairspray, talcum powder, lotions, and so forth. To me, it was a beautiful expression of a mature love that said, I know you better and love you more than anyone else on the face of the earth. And I know what you need and use every single day of the year, and I'm going to make sure you have it. The daughter-in-law said, I still get misty-eyed thinking of dad going up and down the aisle at Sam's, lovingly shopping for those precious gifts for his beloved wife. And I have to tell you, if I got that kind of gift for Amy, I would get misty-eyed, not over the gifts, but over the divorce papers being delivered the next day. But... You know, again, people have their own kind of gifts they enjoy. But I think most of you would agree that the very best gift of all was one that had all three characteristics. It was a gift of great value. It was a gift given by somebody who's important to you. And it's a gift that meets a very real need. And of course, the best example of that gift is the gift of Jesus Christ. You know, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul was writing to the Corinthian church about their need to give to a special offering he was collecting, and he was trying to motivate them to give, and he used the greatest example of giving he could think of, God giving his only son. And he climaxed that chapter in verse 15 by writing these words, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The Living Bible says, a gift far too wonderful for words. 
God's indescribable gift. You know, that's quite a concession for somebody like Paul to give, to say that he can't even describe the gift of Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, think about Paul. He had more degrees than you could shake a stick at. He would end up writing over half of the New Testament. He studied under the greatest intellect of his day, Gamaliel. And yet when it come, came to trying to express what Christ meant, he said, it's indescribable. I can't come up with a word. That word translated indescribable is a word Paul made up. Doesn't appear in the Greek New Testament anywhere. He just said, I'm gonna come up with a word like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, trying to explain the wonderful, indescribable gift of our God. What is it that made this gift so indescribable? In the few minutes we have today, I just want you to jot down three characteristics of God's indescribable gift. First of all, God's indescribable gift was preceded by elaborate preparation. You know, the bigger the gift, the more important the gift, the more preparation it requires. Many of you know my sister Jennifer and her husband Matthew, who teaches our sunburst class. Matthew and Jennifer lived in Tyler for a number of years where Matthew pastored. And uh, their eldest daughter, my niece, uh, was a gifted concert pianist. And when she was a little girl, more than anything for Christmas, she wanted a baby grand piano. And so they went around to the different music stores and she found the one she really wanted. And about two weeks before Christmas, Jennifer and Matthew had to break the news to her. Jennifer said, Caroline would love to give this to you, but we just can't afford it right now. All we can afford is an upright piano. Maybe someday we can give you this piano. And Caroline was disappointed, but she had a good attitude about it. Now, what Caroline didn't know about her mother is something I've known for a long time, and that is Jennifer is a great liar. <laughs> One of the most gifted I've ever met. <laughs> she and Matthew actually had purchased that baby grand piano and they made an elaborate preparation that on Christmas Day, while they were out for breakfast, the music store would deliver the grand piano. And so when they came back from breakfast and opened the door, there was that beautiful baby grand piano with a ribbon on it. It was a gift with elaborate preparation. I tell you, even more elaborate preparation came with God's indescribable gift. In Galatians 4.4, Paul said, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Again, the Living Bible says, at just the right time, God sent forth his son. In what sense was it just the right time? God had been preparing for this gift for thousands of years, and now the time had come. It was the right time, first of all, culturally, when you think about it, for the coming of Christ. For the first time since the Tower of Babel, the majority of people in the world were speaking the same language. Alexander the Great had fashioned Koine Greek, Greek for the common man to be spoken, and that facilitated the spreading of the gospel when Christ came. It facilitated the writing of the scriptures in a language everyone could understand. Secondly, it was the right time politically for the coming of Christ. The emperor was Caesar Augustus. His real name was Octavian. 
And he had achieved and presided over the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The world, for the first time in a long time, was relatively at peace. And there was a vast road system like our interstate highways the Romans had created, again, that would allow for the quick spread of the gospel after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Thirdly, it was the right time spiritually for the coming of Christ. The polytheism, the worship of many gods of the Romans and the Greeks had given way to the openness to monotheism, the idea that there is one God, not multiple gods. But most importantly, it was the right time prophetically, the right time prophetically for the coming of Christ. As you know, there were over 150 specific prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of Christ, some of them hundreds, a few of them a thousand years old, that gave every detail about his birth. Let me just give you one example. This prophecy was made 700 years before Christ was born. It's found in Micah 5.2. Remember what Micah said? But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Of all of the places Christ could have been born, Micah pinpointed this little village that was so small it wasn't even listed on the registry of towns. He said, this is where Christ is going to be born. That's an amazing prophecy. Now, fast forward 700 years from Micah 5.2 to the time Christ was born. Mary and Joseph, the couple, uh, are expecting the birth of the miraculous child. The only problem is they're not in Bethlehem, where Micah predicted. They're up north, 90 miles north in Nazareth. So how in the world does God get this couple from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. Well, we find the answer in the first verse of Luke chapter two. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, Octavian, that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. While Mary and Joseph were in Nazareth contemplating the birth of this miraculous child, a half a continent away in the center of power, Rome, the emperor and his advisors are meeting together. And you know what they're talking about? A government shutdown because of a lack of funding. Some things never change, do they, Harris? Same news, just recycled. We're facing that right now. So they were saying, how are we going to make up for the shortfall of this lack of revenue? And somebody comes up with a brilliant idea. Let's tax the people. Again, some things never change, do they? They never think about decreasing spending. It's always, let's raise the taxes on people. The only problem was, unlike the IRS today that has computers that can track you down wherever you are and knows every amount of income you have, there was no way to track people down. So what did Octavian do? He made an order that everyone had to go to his hometown to register for a census that would lead to the taxation. Look at verse three. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went from Galilee, the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called 
Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David. Think about it. The most powerful man in the world, Octavian, signed a decree and order. Little did he know when he signed that command that it would cause a couple he had never met named Joseph and Mary to travel to a village he had never heard of named Bethlehem to give birth to the Savior of the world. Now, that's just one example of the elaborate preparation that preceded God's indescribable gift. Secondly, God's indescribable gift was not only preceded by elaborate preparation, it was actually missed because of its simple appearance. Look at verses six and seven. While they were there in Bethlehem, the days were accomplished for her to give birth. And so she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. You know one reason, the main reason most people miss God's indescribable gift? It's because of the wrapping in which that gift came. The Jews believed that the greatest need they had was for liberation from the Romans. They wanted to be free from being underneath the Roman boot. They wanted liberation from Rome. But what they really needed was liberation from their sins and the consequences of their sin. They were looking for a political deliverer, and that's why they missed the coming of the Messiah. They expected when the Messiah came, he would come dressed in regal robes like a king ought to be instead of these simple cloths. The same thing is true today. You know, most people you talk to, if you ask, what's the greatest gift God could give you? Most people would answer, boy, what I really need is an infusion of cash into my bank account. Or I need healing in my body or the body of somebody I love. I need reconciliation in a relationship that's gone south. That's my greatest need. Those are all legitimate needs, but our greatest need is for God's forgiveness. And I think that explains why this announcement of Christ's birth came to the group it did. It didn't come to the religious leaders. It came to the most unlikely group, verse eight of chapter two. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, you have to understand, in the first century, you didn't get any lower <laughs> on the socioeconomic ladder than shepherds. They were the bottom rung. Nobody wanted to be around shepherds. They never got invited to the A-list parties, partly because of how they dressed and probably because of how they smelled after being with the sheep. They were outcasts which explains why they were the first to hear the news of the gospel. They understood their need. And that's why the angel said in verse 9 through 11, the angel suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a what? A savior who is Christ the Lord. Somebody has said if man's greatest need had been for an education, God would have sent us a teacher. If our greatest need had been for money, God would have sent us an economist. But our greatest need was for forgiveness. 
And that's why God sent us a Savior. For unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And by the way, will you notice that is good news of great joy for all the people. All the people, not just some of the people. Christ's coming is good news for all people. I have an op-ed coming out Tuesday at Fox News on why Christmas isn't just for Christians. Did you know that? The message, the good news of Christians is for Baptists, it's for Catholics, it's for Jews, it's for Muslims, it's for atheists. Whosoever will may come and take the water of life without cost. God said Jesus is for everyone, not just for some people. That's the good news we have to share. Christ's coming is good news for everyone. How did the shepherds react to that news? Look at verse 15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight immediately to Bethlehem then and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They couldn't get to Bethlehem quickly enough. Now compare that to the religious leaders in Matthew 2 who had the same information. They knew about the Christ coming. And what did they do? Absolutely nothing. They stayed right where they were. They thought if the Messiah had come to provide forgiveness, he needed to forgive other people, but not them. The religious leaders were filled with pride and self-righteousness. They didn't understand that their need for God's forgiveness wasn't partial, it was total. You know, I suspect some of you listening right now, some of you here today, if you're honest, you have a hard time getting excited about the Christmas message. You've heard it over and over and over again. If that's true of you, it's only because you don't understand the extent of your need for forgiveness. The Bible says all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve God's punishment, not only in this life, but for all eternity. But Jesus Christ came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, and that is to offer the forgiveness of our sins. Let me illustrate that for you, if I could. I used to have a terrible habit that Amy just absolutely found disgusting. Every Saturday night after dinner, I would get out my shoeshine kit and I would sit in front of the television set watching the news. I would lay out newspaper on our white carpet and I would polish my shoes for Sunday morning. Did that every Saturday night for years and years. And uh, she always warned me about it. She said, you're gonna get some of that shoe polish on our white carpet and it's gonna run. No, 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 I'll be very careful, I said. I promised to be careful. Well, one night I was extra enthusiastic about my shoe shining and I was rubbing that brush and all of a sudden a little fleck of shoe polish jumped off of my brush, leapt over the newspaper and landed on the white carpet. I was panicked. So I went over and I very carefully tried to remove that speck of shoe polish. And as I was doing it, it caused a little streak there. I thought, oh no, Amy's gonna kill me. What am I gonna do? So I ran into the kitchen, got a paper towel, wetted it, came back and rubbed 
All the ladies are saying, you idiot, what are you thinking? I started rubbing, you know what happened, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. Fortunately, Amy acted with grace and not judgment, and she knew exactly who to call. She called a carpet cleaner, and they came in. It was the most amazing thing. For $89.95, they had a special detergent that I could use, and they just rubbed it on that spot, and it disappeared like it was never there. Now, that's a silly illustration, I know, but it illustrates a serious point. The fact is, all of us have stained our lives with sin, every one of us. Some of us have bigger stains than others, but it doesn't matter. The stain is still there. And there's nothing we can do to erase that stain. In fact, usually the more we try to do, the worse it becomes. But here's the good news. God has a spiritual detergent that can remove the stain of your sin forever. It's called the blood of Christ. And the Bible says when you trust in Christ as your Savior, though your sins be as scarlet, he makes them as white as snow. Isn't that great news? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God's indescribable gift was missed by many because of its simple appearance. Thirdly, why is God's gift indescribable? Because it was occasioned by unparalleled love. Look at verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom God is pleased. That verse gets mistranslated in some versions. And the angel said, glory to God in the highest and peace, goodwill toward men, as if God was simply spreading and sharing goodwill, peace to everybody. No, it's to a specific group, peace to those with whom God is pleased. The fact is, God is not pleased with us apart from Christ. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Jesus is the mediator, the bridge builder, the one who came to restore our relationship with God. And those who come to faith in Christ can be at peace with themselves, but most importantly, they can be at peace with God. You know, one of the most common images in the Bible of God the Father is of the wounded lover. The Bible says God loves you and me. He created us to have a relationship with us, but we are the ones who wandered away from God. We've allowed other people and other things to replace his rightful place in our heart. How has God responded to that wound, that insult? He could have left us where we are, separated from God in this life and in the next one. But instead, God took the first step in reconciling that relationship with us. The Bible says, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. It was God's love that occasioned 
this indescribable gift. J.B. Phillips was a pastor, an Anglican pastor in London, and the Bible translator who wrote that Phillips paraphrase of the New Testament, many of us enjoy. In one of his writings, J.B. Phillips describes what the first Christmas must have looked like from the angel's point of view. Listen to this. A senior angel is showing a very young angel around the splendors of the universe. They view whirling galaxies and blazing suns and then flit across the infinite distances of space until at last they enter one particular galaxy containing 500 billion stars. As the two angels drew nearer to the star, which we call our sun, and to its circling planets, the senior angel pointed to a small and rather insignificant sphere turning very slowly on its axis. It looked as dull as a dirty tennis ball to the little angel whose mind was filled with the size and glory of what he had just seen. I want you to watch that planet particularly, said the senior angel, pointing with his finger. Well, it looks very small and rather dirty to me, said the little angel. What's so special about that one? He listened in stunned disbelief as the senior angel told him that this planet, small and insignificant and not overly clean, was the renowned visited planet. Do you mean that our great and glorious prince went down in person to that fifth-rate little ball? Why should he do such a thing as that? The little angel's face wrinkled in disgust. He continued, do you mean to tell me that he stooped so low as to become one of those creeping, crawling creatures of that floating ball? I do, said the senior angel. And I don't think he would like you to call them creeping, crawling creatures in that tone of voice. For strange as it may seem to us, he loves them. He went down to visit them, to lift them up, to become like him. The little angel looked blank. Such a thought was almost beyond comprehension. Such a thought was beyond Paul's comprehension too which is why he said, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, a gift far too wonderful for words. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.